Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Goggles Off. I'm your host, Brandon Milady, a PhD candidate in biomedical engineering and former chemist. Behind me is the fascinating work of Professor Thomas Yankilov here at the University of Texas at Austin. Tom uses the power of computers to fight cancer and specifically combines mathematical modeling with patient-specific data to predict how a tumor will respond to various therapies so that a physician can pick the best therapy as early on in treatment as possible. Tom hopes to predict a tumor's response to therapy with the same fidelity a meteorologist predicts the weather. All that and more in this episode of Goggles Off. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Goggles Off. Today, it's my immense pleasure to be joined by Professor Thomas Yankilov. Tom, how are you doing today? I feel like $100, Brendan. Thanks for asking. $100? No, you look like a million bucks, though. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to unpack your education just a little bit, just to start, so the audience knows where you're coming from. So it's a pretty eclectic bag, but you did your bachelor's in mathematics at the University of Louisville, uh, and then got not one, but two masters, one in mathematics, one in physics from Indiana University. Then you got a PhD in biomedical engineering from State University of New York at Stony Brook, and then did a postdoc in cancer imaging at Vanderbilt University before ultimately joining Vanderbilt as faculty in 2008, where you served as professor in multiple subject areas, radiology and radiological sciences, uh, Ingram professor of cancer research, biomedical engineering, cancer biology, physics, and as the director of cancer imaging research. Then you switched over to the University of Texas at Austin, where I was fortunate enough to meet you. Uh, and there you serve as the professor in biomedical engineering, diagnostic medicine, and oncology, and as the director for the Center of Computational Oncology. Really sort of a nightmare for a host like me because I have to, <laughs> I have to go through that and get through that. So I've been practicing that. So thank you very much. Um, so sort of first question for you, it's a, it should be an easy one. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your research and sort of what you've been doing over the past couple of years and then also what the Center for Computational Oncology does? Sure. Uh, yeah, I can give that a go. So our lab's research focuses at the interface of mathematical modeling and, and oncology. And what we try to do is we try to sort of mathematize cancer. We try to come up with equations that describe how cancer initiates how it um, progresses, how it progresses, and then hopefully how it responds to treatment. The idea being that if you if if you don't have a mathematical model underneath the hood, you're you're left with trial and error to how to figure out how something works. So there's a group of people around the world who are trying to come up with mathematical equations that describes how cancers you know develop, how they um, uh, progress, and how they respond to therapy. So that's what our lab is focusing on, trying to develop those equations and then use those things to optimize therapy for the individual patient. Awesome. Awesome. And sort of how did you get into this research? I, I, it seems sort of odd that you went from math and physics and then pivoted to biomedical engineering. Sort of what happened there? It's a ridiculous, long, sordid tale, Brandon, but I will give it a go. Um, uh, I, I always really liked math and, and I really liked science, but I could never pick which science to go after. So I kind of just stayed, I tried to kick the can down the road as far as I could. So I, I just kept on staying in math because, you know, math is, they say, the queen of the sciences. And so if you 
study at what's at the center of science, then maybe you can put off making a decision as long as you want. And so I ended up going to graduate school in mathematics and, and applied mathematics. And as part of that curriculum, we had to pick an area of uh, application that we thought was going to be fun. And so I took these classes in quantum mechanics, and I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. So then I sort of, like you said, straddled the, the math and physics departments there for, for a couple of master's degrees. And then um, during a summer inter- internship up at Brookhaven National Laboratory in the, in the physics department there, I just had a run-in at a seminar with the guy who ended up becoming my advisor, Charlie Springer, who was actually a chemist doing um, research in quantitative MRI. And so then I thought that was, you know, that was really cool because it combined math and physics and then with applications to medicine. And so I went up there and uh, transferred to, to SUNY Stony Brook and did the, um, uh, did the PhD in biomedical engineering there. And uh, the reason that, <laughs> sort of embarrassing, the reason that I switched into biomedical engineering was that I'd only had to take one more class to satisfy the requirements and after you know the, the two master's degrees i was kind of done with being in the classroom so um uh, as a student anyway so i i switched to bme and, and took my molecular biology class and then did all the research out at the, at the national lab out there so there there was a method to the madness that just to summarize it was i liked math and uh, i couldn't make a decision so i i waited as long as i could until i had to make a decision yeah hmm so I don't know. It sounds like on a whim, you sort of became this prolific figure in cancer research studies. It sounds, yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know if I'm prolific, but I'm certainly, a, I'm a figure. I'm someone who landed there, right? So, <laughs> so right. So, so I went in and, and did the, the medical imaging thing up um, uh, at SUNY Stony Brook. And then when I started interviewing for postdocs, I, uh, I, I interviewed at Yale University with this guy named John Gore, who's absolutely brilliant. He was actually the, the lead physicist on the installation of the world's first MRI scanner in England. And he had starred a lab at, at Yale. And um, so I went up there to interview with him and he said, you know, we've lured you here under false pretenses. We're moving everybody to Vanderbilt at the end of this year. Mm-hmm. There they were all moving. And, and so then we moved there and, um, um, and Vanderbilt has a very um, established cancer research program. I mean, as does Yale, but, um, uh, and, and uh, so then there became an opportunity to try to marry this quantitative imaging stuff to, um, uh, to, to cancer. And so then that kind of grew up and then um, uh, so we grew up the, the cancer imaging program and tried to put advanced imaging in clinical trials and try to develop new imaging techniques to tell us more things about um, uh, more characteristics of, of tumors. Um, and then one day, Brandon, and here's where the story takes a turn. Like it's very exciting. So I'm certain you're on the edge of your seat for this. The, the, I was at the beach and I was reading this review of um, uh, meteorology and, um, um, and, um, I remember because it was before children and I was sitting next to my wife and I was reading this thing about meteorology and I remember thinking this is this is describing how um, oncology is right now but um, uh, but um, uh, they were describing how meteorology was a hundred years ago when there was no equations and it was all just guesswork and I thought this is this is unfortunately how we frequently feel in cancer biology and oncology and I turned to my wife and I said honey I think I got an idea and she said that's great could you go back to the condo and get me another drink so, so on the way back to the condo, I thought about this. And so what we've been doing is we've been stealing a lot of ideas from, from weather modeling and applying it to, to cancer modeling. And so, you know, just like in weather modeling, you have satellites and radar to make measurements. We have these medical imaging devices that I had been studying for however many years at that point that were going to be our satellites to make measurements on the, on the tumors. And then in um, uh, meteorology, you have these fancy equations to describe how weather patterns form and move. And we were going to develop 
um, uh, mathematical models to describe how tumors evolved and responded to therapy and so forth. And so that's kind of how it all came to be over the course of, of a great number of years. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. And then sort of platforming off that, if the progression of cancer growth or, you know, the response to treatment could be predicted sort of as simply as we, you know, predict the weather for the next week, what sort of impact would that have to the patient? Like what could they experience? Oh, well, it would be, it would be a, it would be a paradigm change. You know, people use that phrase too much, but it really would, because what happens right now is of course the patient comes in and they have their, their imaging or their biopsy sample taken, and they have some set of characteristics that describe the tumor. And, and they can frequently be very detailed characteristics. But then what happens is, you know, you kind of go to the population and you say, you look at the population and you say, which characteristics is this patient most similar to? And then the therapeutic regimen given that patient is determined by that population. And of course, they are very different than that population. They are, you know, they're an individual with their own set of um, um, biological and psychological and sociological needs, which may or may not be summarized very well in that population um, um, that you're using to assign the therapy for that patient. But that's what we do. And even beyond that, you, you know, very few, very rarely do cancer patients get just one therapy. They will get, you know, two, three, four, five, and multiple um, uh, different regimens depending on the particular subtype of the particular cancer. And no, everybody knows that the way that we give the therapy is not optimal for each individual patient because there's just too many things to explore. You can't explore in a clinical trial, you know, first take these patients and give them drug one for X number of days and then go to drug two. And then in another set of patients, start with drug two and then go to drug one. And if you're doing that for four or five drugs, there's not enough patients or resources to, you know, to pay for all that. But if you had a mathematical model that could predict how a patient's tumor was going to respond to therapy, then you can compute it all on the computer with the patient's individual characteristics and then you could truly make a personalized um, a treatment plan for the individual. So that's kind of the that's the kind of the holy grail of mathematical oncology is to is to be able to not only make a prediction of how a patient's going to respond to therapy, but then use that information to opt to do your intervention in an optimal way for that individual. So it would change how we how we treated patients. Um, it would be night and day before and after. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and then another thing that you had mentioned in class previously when we I sort of took your diagnostic imaging class was this idea that, you know, cancer therapy can often be pretty intense on the body. And so it's important to, you know, pick the right treatment early on when the patient is as healthy as possible and avoid, you know, using superfluous treatments that, you know, aren't going to benefit them. So it sounds like this predictive model could sort of prevent that. Yeah. So after you have a model that can actually predict how a tumor is going to grow and respond to therapy in space and time. You can then use that model to say on the computer, okay, here are 500 different possible therapeutic regimens. You know, you're varying the therapy, the order, the timing, all that. And there's this established thing from engineering that's been around forever called optimal control theory. And you have some, you have something that you want to result in, in taking place. And for us, that's, that's curing the patient and trying to get there, given all the different therapeutic regimens, how do you, how, which one do you pick? If you have a mathematical model, you can throw this, this, this um, uh, analytical technique, optimal control theory at the model to figure out what's the best way to give the therapeutic regimen um, uh, to have uh, tumor control for as long as possible. So it's, it's, it's the type of thing you can't do unless you have a mathematical model under the hood describing the process. But once okay. you have one, you, it, it, you're home free. Okay. And, and how is, how is it going? I guess I read your paper, the 2021 Nature paper, and it seemed um, there's a figure sort of near the end of the paper that shows that 
the program like relatively accurately, like 80% accuracy predicted the progression of a tumor uh, over time? Like how, how is the model doing so far? Yeah, it's doing it's doing really well in the particular case of of breast breast cancer. So we um uh, our lab works a lot in brain cancer and um uh, breast cancer and, and prostate cancer. And the, the the paper you're referring to, I believe, is in uh, is uh, focused on breast cancer. And so that paper describes sort of soup to nuts the whole data acquisition, the pre-processing, the um uh, the post-processing, the and then the model forecasting, the tumor forecasting. And that that has an accuracy up around you know about 88 or 90 percent for predicting which breast cancer patients are going to um, um, respond to therapy and, and which are not. And we, we just actually had another paper accepted at, at Cancer Research that that backs us up in another patient group. So we're, we're you know we got to the point where we kind of believe that this thing actually works, and and we've started the process of um, um of well I, I hate to say this because I <laughs> we've started the process of starting to. To, to form a company to try to make this an actual product that we could then sell to um, uh, either uh, MRI vendors or pharmaceutical companies or directly to, to oncologists and, and, and treating physicians that will help them uh, uh, as a decision support tool for predicting whether or not a patient will respond to a particular therapeutic regimen. I, I hesitate to say that because it could take a long time, of course, to build a company and then find you know investors and stuff. But we've submitted the patents and copyrighted the code and um, um, built the the business plan and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm cautiously optimistic that this is going to happen. <laughs> That's so cool. Wow. Um, yeah, it's really incredible. It just sounds like science fiction, sort of platforming off this idea of science fiction. I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on things like X-ray, MRI, SPECT, and PECT. Like, how, how do you feel when you think about these? Like, we're looking inside a human's body, whereas previously we'd have to like sort of slice them open. Sort of, what does this make you? What does this make you think of? Oh, it seems like magic. At, to this day, whenever I'm at an MR scanner and the image comes up, it just really seems like magic. Um, MRI in particular, which I, I think, I think most people will agree is the most complicated, at least from a physics perspective. Um, uh, there's so many things that have to go right, and it's such a precise timing to get these images, but you know, it happens every day, tens of thousands of times, you know, right now as we're talking, someone's getting their ACL scanned, someone else is, you know, having something more um, insidious scanned. Um, uh, it, it happens all day, every day. And it, it, it kind of just seems like magic. And it's why these things won Nobel prizes. So, you know, the, the, the first Nobel prize was given for x-ray. Um, um, uh, and then, then there was another Nobel prize in the seventies for, for x-ray CT computed tomography. That was the first time we could actually see cross-sectional images of, of the body, and then there's been Nobel prizes for for MRI as well. So, um, um, I mean, to this day, when I when you look at an image and you think about all the stuff that has to go in to making it, it's still um, uh, you know, sends shivers up my spine because it just kind of seems like magic. Yeah, I, I mean, it is crazy. We you know in your class, we went over the physics, the math, and sort of the engineering, like what you know these systems look like and how they do it, and it all it almost like made me just. I was in disbelief. Like, how are humans able to do this? Like, it's just right. absolutely yeah. bizarre. Um, yeah. So I'm curious uh, how you, you know, because cancer is sort of a downer, right? Obviously, and you're sort of around this all the time. And I just had an experience in the hospital where I was working at Dell Medical School, um, sort of like shadowing technicians, working in the diagnostic imaging center to sort of find something that I could potentially improve. Uh, and it did sort of get to me. I'd be scanning these people or working with te technician to scan people. And it would sort of, you know, chit chat, chit chat there, you know, how's your day, blah, blah, blah. What school do you go to? Things like this. And then we put them on the scanner and then, you know, they're, you know, rid riddled with cancer. And then one of the ones that hit me the hardest was this young lady. She was 19 years old and she came in for actually a, you know, torn ACL. 
Uh, and when imaging it, it actually was something much more serious. She had a osteosarcoma in her yeah. femur and, you know, was, wasn't expecting that. And then she take her out of the scanner and I have to be just as congenial and just as like, right. you know, go lucky as I was when I put her in the scanner before I you know, found this out. And it's just hard. Like, it seems really hard. So I'm curious how you can sort of deal with that emotionally. Yeah, it's hard. And I don't think it's getting e- easier. It's actually one of the reasons I decided to go the PhD route rather than the MD route because I didn't think I had the um, uh, the uh, psychological or mental fortitude to um, uh, to to deal with that day in and day out. Um, uh, that and I also really like math, so that was that was the other, a practical thing. But I but um uh, but being able to have those conversations with patients is extraordinarily difficult. And um uh, so so I don't have the direct thing. You know, I, I see the the I don't have a direct. I don't have a whole lot of direct patient content anymore because I don't actually run the clinical trials anymore. We have team members who do that. But when I was younger, that was what you just described was always a concern because you would meet people, particularly the young people um, uh, whose lives are just starting and you'd um, uh, you know, enroll them on the trial and perform the scanning and so forth. And it, w- uh, and it can be heartbreaking. And I would always, um, uh, I used to take the students in our lab over to the, uh, like the, the, the entrance way to the cancer center at Vanderbilt every now and again, and kind of make them sit there and watch people come in for their appointments and remind them, you know, that we're not just playing computer games and chasing equations on whiteboards. Now there's a reason we're doing that because everybody who's coming in through those doors today is having a terrible day. And, you know, it was particularly moving when you'd see children come in because they've got their, you know, they've got their stuffies, their, their stuffed animals that they're holding onto. And when a child gets, cancer you know it's a full court press so mom and dad and aunts now everybody's walking in with them they have their entourage and it's just it just breaks your heart and it um uh, and it, it has to be motivating it, it because because this stuff is so difficult to do you have to you have to have a driving um uh, a driving motivation and so you try to keep those kinds of um, uh, images in your head you can't live there of course because it's mm-hmm. it becomes debilitating but you have to remind yourself when it's two o'clock in the morning when and everything thing is nothing's working and you uh, you have to have that motivation to um, uh, continue pushing for uh for for you know for the next generation absolutely and you, you thank you for everything that you do and sort of burdening through that and sort of moving on through it that's awesome um to switch to sort of a lighter lighter question uh <laughs> yeah. you once in class told this story of you know the stress of losing a mouse in an mri laboratory uh so can you tell me a little bit about that what was that like <laughs> My goodness, uh, are you recording this conversation? Um, yes. yes, you are. Yeah, right. So you know you can't just take animals and put them in MRI scan, MRI scanners, or any other kind of scanner or do any experience. There's a whole huge process. The Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee (IACUC), and so um, uh, this is a, 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 it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, each institution has to have one of these things, and it's accredited twice yearly. In fact, we have one coming up in September here at UT Austin. Um, uh, and so you have to you have to write these protocols that then have to get approved by the governing body, and then you have to follow them to a letter. Um, and um, uh, otherwise, you can risk getting your lab shut down, or worse, you know, the institution shut down for not following these things. It, it is a big deal. Um, uh, so, um, uh, and of course, one of the biggest thing is how many animals are you going to use? What are you going to do to them? Um, uh, you have to keep track of them. You know, when are they going to get tumors? When are they going to get treatment, and so forth? And so. Um, uh, so you really have to know where your animals are. So when you bring animals into the uh, to the imaging suite, uh, you know animals will get up and run away. They don't want to. They, they they will not um, uh, sit still on the scanner. So you have to anesthetize them. 
And so we give them this anesthesia that 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 knocks them out for, um, and it has to be very controlled again. That has to be an animal care and use protocol about how deep an anesthesia and what the dose is and for how long and all this stuff. And then, um, uh, so after you do your scanning and you take them out, and uh, and, and then you you have to keep them warm until they return to regular blood pressure and, and temperature and their regular um, uh, 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 breathing, the respiratory rate as they come off anesthesia. And so it did not happen to me. So I, it's not, it, it, I, I wasn't re- responsible for it, but definitely somebody had their mouse there underneath the, um, um, actually it may have been a rat. I think it was a rat. And so if you're not familiar with the difference, a rat is about 10 times the size of a mouse. It's, it's, it's a substantial animal. And so they're under the, the rat is under the heat lamp. It's coming off of anesthesia. Someone is attending to cleaning up the, their exam or their, their study or typing things on the computer to enter in what they did. And they look over and the rat is gone because it had woken up from the anesthesia and then got very curious and started to, um, uh, started to wander around. And in a the lab, there's lots of nooks and crannies. And so good grief, we were all frantically panicking trying to find this rat. One, because there was now a rat loose in the building. And two, because everybody's thinking at the end of the day, you have to enter into your animal care log what happened to these rats. Rats cannot put in there. Rat woke up, walked away, couldn't find rat. You know that, that could shut down the whole operation. So the rat eventually was found and retrieved, and it was pretty docile. So there was a happy ending to that. But it was um, um it was an all hands on deck situation there in the lab for a moment as ten people were tearing the lab apart looking for a a furry little you know woodland creature that was uh, wandering around. So I don't know. <laughs> That's I, very interesting, but it happened. Yeah. I could not imagine how difficult it would be to find a rat in a laboratory, especially one with a bunch of instruments and stuff all over the place. That's right. Yes. Horrible. That's right. Yes. We, afterwards, after it all settled down, we thought we might write a musical and call it Rats, <laughs> after, make it after Cats, but it would be about the rats. Try, yeah, I don't know. It's, maybe <laughs> it's not interesting. I'd watch it. I'd watch it for sure. Um, this is a question I sort of ask all my guests on the show because I think it's important to sort of, you know, you have this decorated career it's seemingly nothing but success so i think it's important to ask this but what is your greatest scientific failure throughout your career and then also (laughs) (laughs) there are so many (laughs) my my biggest um a a failure um um, well i can tell you my biggest academic failure um um, uh and uh it's is right i appreciate you asking this because this is super true um, uh, and it happens every year uh, like a, like that medical imaging class that you mentioned um it's a split level class which means it's you know roughly half seniors and roughly half uh, first year graduate students and so it always happens in about october halfway through october of that year about six weeks seven weeks into the um uh, into the semester um uh, i start getting all of these emails about the students feeling like they're not supposed to be there and i'm um, a uh, everybody else is so much smarter they have their all act together but i know that's not true because i've been doing this long enough and i've gotten hundreds of emails where everybody's saying the same thing and people will even frequently say you know well i look over at betsy and she seems like she has it all together and i think to myself you know betsy emailed me on monday saying that she doesn't have it all together and she's this happens every year like clockwork so i think it is important to to acknowledge our um, uh, our failures right they're the source of great teaching so my biggest failure it's coming is here is the um, uh, I went to graduate school to be um, uh, when I left undergrad went to graduate school I wanted to be a, um, a, a mathematical physicist so I went into the math department and after a year of graduate mathematics courses I realized that I could not um, uh, do uh, uh, I could not get a PhD in mathematics and so I am um, uh, only was able to 
achieved a, a master's degree there because I failed the PhD qualifying exam in mathematics. So, so there it is, right there, out there in the open. <laughs> so oh. My greatest academic failure was failing the um, uh, the, the PhD qualifying exam. So, but but then but then you know that 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 taught me an awful lot about myself and realized that um, I was really liking these physics classes better. And then I went to the physics department and did, um, a, you know, I did very well on that qualifying exam. And then like we talked about earlier, I went to, to Stony Brook to, to zoom in on um, uh, medical applications. And, uh, and I was the first person in the history of the department to pass that qualifying exam on the first try. So, you know, sometimes our biggest failures really points us in the, in the correct direction. And I, I think that definitely happened for me. However, if you were to talk to 23-year-old Tom and tell him that, I can tell you that he would not have heard that through his tears. So if, if there's anybody out there in a similar, uh, anybody out there listening to a similar situation, sometimes our greatest failures really uh, point us in the right direction because uh, I, I wouldn't have this gig if I hadn't have gone through that. So, Wow. I mean, that's fantastic advice for, I mean, really anybody in life. You know, sometimes an adversity comes your way and it can be hard to see you know, what's going to happen based off that adversity in your life, but it doesn't necessarily always be something bad. Like, I don't know what you would have done if you got that PhD in math, uh, but certainly you've done a tremendous amount with your biomedical engineering efforts. So I don't know, it seems like it was the positive, positive thing to do. Uh, um, And you also mentioned, I appreciate that you mentioned this idea of students struggling and looking at their peers and being like, oh, you know, not feeling like they fit in because when I was in your class, I sort of got a little bit of a flavor of this myself. I'm generally a confident person in my abilities, but I switched from chemistry to biomedical engineering. And so I hadn't seen an inter- and it had been a few years of me working in a research laboratory. So I hadn't really done like mathematics in a while. So I was then in your class and it was very math, a lot of, a lot of physics, nothing crazy, but it's still, I was like, Oh, how do I do an integral? How do I do a triple integral? Like, I don't remember this stuff. And it was like sort of daunting at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I realized everybody else in, you know, my, my friend group was also, you know, struggling or, you know, struggling through it. And so, yeah, that kind of helped me. Like, I think you said this at one point in class, like that same lecture you just gave this idea that, Hey, everybody's struggling just, you know, work hard and you can get through it. Um, and so, yeah, that helped me, but I'm curious why, you know, why teaching is so important to you? Because when I was in your class, it became very apparent right away that you're passionate about teaching in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. For example, you do all these funny things like you're listening to Tom radio all time, <laughs> all the time. And like that, that would make me laugh. I thought that was hilarious. And so I'm curious, you know, where this passion comes from and why you're so enthusiastic about teaching. Well, um, um, <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a practical reason. And then there's perhaps a slightly more entertaining reason. When I was, um, uh, I finished my first semester of, of undergrad, I went to the, the, um, uh, the guidance person there in the um, uh, in the honors house, and and he says, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And I say, "Well, I think I'd really like to be a comedic actor, but I'll probably end up being a research scientist." And um, uh, and he he looked at me, he picked up the phone, and he called somebody over in the acting department, and he said, "Professor so and he said, "Tom, Professor so and so is waiting for you in the lobby of, um, of the fine arts building, um, uh, and he's ready to talk to you about this." And so I said, "Okay." And so I walked over. I was on the way over there. Brandon, can you picture? Young 18-year-old Tom is on his way over there, and um, um, and I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. I'll never be a comedic actor, and I don't want to live in a box in Manhattan. So I'm up. So I'm not willing to do that. So then I turned and went back to the natural sciences building. So I always wonder if there's an, a parallel dimension, if there's a Tom somewhere who is a struggling comedic <laughs> actor. But so I really, it, and this is going to sound obnoxious, if any for those of you who are listening and realize that I'm actually not that funny, but I really like making people laugh. And I, I'm, um, and I, I really like using that as a way to diffuse tension. 
So when it comes to things that are mathy, you know, you, you frequently hear students, younger students, middle school students, high school students talking about, oh, I don't do math. I can't do math. But you don't hear people say, I, I don't do history. I, I can't do history or I, I can't do Spanish. There's this math phobia that exists. And I'm, um, I think a lot of us had very serious math teachers, maybe maybe not the best math teachers growing up. So I, I like to diffuse that tension by trying to um, um, try to inject some levity. And I really like the idea of of helping people understand difficult concepts that maybe before they, they couldn't understand before because there's, you know, when you understand something about the universe mathematically, you unlock an understanding of it that is very difficult to have with um, uh, in the absence of math. So being able to lead people through that um, is, is, kind of a, is, is kind of a lot of fun. And being able to see the look on someone's face when they finally get something is really fun. And we know because we're very lucky here at, at UT to have these phenomenal engineering students. I walk into any class that I'm teach, going to teach, and almost all of the students are naturally smarter than I am. So being able to try to hand the baton off to them as they run the marathon forward is, is very exciting. So that, that's a lot of fun. Then there's just the practical aspect of it, of uh, teaching the next generation helps make you keeps you young because the students ask questions that you hadn't thought of before. This happened at least once a week. You probably remember somebody would ask me a question and I'd say, uh, I don't know. I'm going to have to go look this up or think about it. And then I'd try to follow it up with an email explaining the, the answer or whatever. Um, I, and if you're not teaching, it's it's much harder to have those interactions with, with younger students who um, are thinking about it differently. And that's super important because that's how progress happens. You, you have to think about the same problem differently to, to, to crack that nut. So um, I think those are two kind of reasons I, I like to do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sort of, you know, platforming off that, what else do you like to do? I mean, it sounds like you never would have free time because you're doing so many things and got your, got your hand in so many different, you know, pots, but you know, what do you do if you have a little bit of free time on your hands? What are, what are you into? Oh, well, I, I, I have, we have two, my wife and I have, have we're blessed with two small children. So I am a coach, a lot of their teams. So we've done a lot of soccer and a lot of basketball um, youth leagues. My, my daughter has now graduated out of what I can teach her in soccer. So she's now graduated. I still teach her basketball to coach her, teach, I still coach her basketball team. And then my son's soccer team and, um, um, and his basketball team. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. Um, that has a lot of highs and a lot of lows. <laughs> Um, and then uh, I, I like to um, um, I like to I like to play guitar. My wife's a musician, and uh, she's a you know, an oboist, a pianist, and a vocalist. And and we have a little a little jazz duo. I, I play guitar, and she sings and plays piano. And we do you know jazz standards from the forties and fifties, and, and that's an awful lot of fun. So, what do you do are, this just in your home, or do you go like out and? Well, when the before children, we had a duo that would go out and and, and play a different you know nothing. You know, nothing spectacular, just sort of like um, events on campus, those kinds of things, you know, where they needed a, a cheap uh, jazz music in the background. We, we would we would do that. Um, um, but now um, uh, we're thinking about getting back into it now that the kids are a little bit older and we don't, it, you don't it's easier to practice, you know, because they have their own interests and they don't need to be, you know, watched as 24 uh, 7 anymore. So we're thinking about getting back into that. Okay. Uh, you you mentioned like you and your wife's musical talents, and it just like made me think of I don't know. You shared the story with the class. I don't know if you want to share it here, but uh, sort of your first approach to to your wife, like the first thing you said to her when you noticed her reading that that Beethoven book, how that went. Yes, well, so I uh, so I actually saw her at a part. I can't believe anybody would be interested in this, but it, <laughs> it, it's very interesting to us. So I it was Christmas Day of 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 twenty of two thousand. Christmas of 2000 and um, 
uh, and I was uh, I was actually teaching my niece how to play chess, and I get a call from my buddy that says, "Hey, Tom, people are are, um, are coming over to hang out. Do you want to come over and hang?" I said, oh, "I'll catch up with you tomorrow. I'm hanging out with my niece, and we're playing chess. It's awesome." He said, "Just come over and say hi." So. So, okay. So I came over and said, hi. I opened the door and I immediately saw this young woman across the way at the party. I am not making this up. And, and people in the crowd actually kind of separated a little bit. So there was a clear path between me and her. And I knew of her. I knew Margie. I knew of Margie. And I knew that she was um, some kind of musician, but I didn't really know much beyond that. And so I, went, I thought to myself, I said, I said, Tom, calm down, take a deep breath, find out what's important to her and talk to her about that. And so I went over and I said, hi, I'm Tom. And and she said, yeah, I, I think I remember hearing about you. And I said, you're Margie, right? And she said, yes. And I said, you, you're you a, um, a musician, right? And she said, yeah, I'm at conservatory. I said, oh, which conservatory? And she said, I'm at the Cincinnati Conservatory. And I said, oh, that's one of the top 10 conservatories in the country. You must be quite good. And she says, well, I don't know. And I, I said, what's your instrument? And she says, oboe. I said, oh, oboe. That's the one that has the solo right after the development in the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And she was like, well, yes, it does. And like her, her, her image of me completely changed. And, and so we kind of picked each other out as the ones to flirt with that night. And um, uh, we stayed up all night talking and then we were engaged shortly thereafter. It was a very quick courtship, if you will. But the only reason I, I knew all that stuff about music was just the previous week, just on a whim in a, in a, a Barnes and Noble, if those even exist anymore, I picked up this book called the 40 greatest composers and their 1000 greatest works. And that this composer thought Beethoven was third or this writer thought Beethoven was the third greatest composer. So I had just finished chapter three. I had just read all the stuff about Beethoven and, and the oboe solo. So it was, it, it was just perfect. It was, it was perfect to have that in my mind right there when I, when I met her for the first time to try to get her interest. So I don't know. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. I need to start reading more, more books. There. I need to just sort of build it up. Um, right. Uh, I was curious, so, you know, what kind of advice would you have for a young scientist or someone thinking about a career in science, um, you know, at multiple levels, one at sort of like high school level and then sort of higher up, maybe at, you know, the collegiate level and then maybe past that at the graduate yeah. student level? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I would advise people is to have interests outside of science and have close friends who are not scientists because they they think in a different way. You'll be taking lots of science classes, lots of math questions, uh, classes and those things all teach you how to think in a particular way that we have to learn how to think to do science but there's a whole other part of the brain that is engaged when you're watching a silly movie with friends or talking to a friend who is a literature major or talking to a friend who's a sculptor or um, um uh, or you know i mean that's enough examples of anything else that isn't, <laughs> isn't science you 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 learn a different way of talking a different way of, of, of thinking and it also helps you communicate because if they're good friends they're going to say so which class are you interested in about this semester and why is that interesting and and you have to explain that to a non-scientist which means you really have to think about what's going on in that class or what your project is or whatever in a way that you probably don't have to do if you're working with a friend in that class who says what did how did you do attack problem three or whatever that's a completely different conversation and a completely different skill set so i think the the biggest um, um the biggest thing is either to uh, is to have friends who are not scientists and have interests that are not science have interests that are outside of science um, um to engage different parts of your mind to, to help you think uh, differently about problem solving yeah wow well, brilliant. Yeah, I need to make some friends. No, I have, I have <laughs> <laughs> one last thing while I have you here that I want to I want to like sort of unpack would be this, because uh, I think this would be really cool to explain to the audience. Um, so you can see my screen. Yes. Oh, yes. Sure. Yeah. So I was just hoping maybe you could like go over this video and this video and like what we're seeing here and like what this means. 
Oh, okay, great. So yes, yeah, so this is a this is a marriage of biology and physics right here. So we took these three um, well-known laws um, of fluid mechanics, fluid dynamics that have been around for 150 years, and we combined that with um, uh, some quantitative imaging data to try to simulate the delivery of drugs to, in this case, a breast tumor. So I don't know if you can see this image, but there's a sort of a pinkish outline of a, a funny-shaped object uh, two-thirds of the way down of, uh, of the of the object you're looking at, and that that's the tumor. And so all the little wiry things that are connected to it are the are the excuse me are the main vessels that are feeding that tumor. So after a tumor reaches about a cubic millimeter, about a million cells, it starts to send out these signals to tell the neighboring vessels to come and bring the vessels to the tumor to to feed the tumor. And so this process has been known for a long time. It's called angiogenesis. And this here, this simulation here, whatever, is um, an estimate of how drugs are are being delivered to this particular tumor. This is a real patient with a real tumor with real blood vessels, and that's our estimate of how the drug is being delivered there. And that's really important, and, it, and it'll bring us full circle. At the beginning, you asked us what the um, uh, goal of the Center for Computational Oncology is, and I talked about trying to mathematize cancer and do patient-specific therapeutic regimens. So here, in this simulation, if you actually know how each patient's um, uh, tumor is being uh, vascularized, how the vessels feed the tumor, then that can guide you on how the best way is, on what the best way is to deliver the treatment to the patient. And it's going to be different from patient to patient to patient. In fact, we've, we've shown that in, in patients, that the optimal method for patient A is, is very different than the optimal method of delivering therapy for, for patient B. And we can figure that out by doing these kinds of um, modeling schemes. So I, I hope that answered the question. No, totally. And so this, is it safe to assume that a person's vasculature from person to person or patient to patient is different? Oh, so it's, you- it's tremendously different. In the, even in the case of breast cancer, the, vascular, the way the vessels are distributed in the left breast is very different than the way they are in the right breast. There's very little on the same patient. So from, when you go from patient to patient, it's, it's very, very different. So this kind of characterization, being able to map out the vessels and how drugs are being delivered to um, um, a breast cancer patient, if you really want to optimize the delivery of therapy, you got to know this for every patient because they're all different. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like sort of moving more towards in the direction of like personalized medicine with, you know, adding, adding sort of their vasculature into the, into the mix and into the models. Yeah. I think that that's a very reasonable thing to say. Very cool. Well, Tom, that's all I have for you. I don't know if you have anything to say to the audience. Maybe, you know, you want to address the goggles off people. These will largely be a lot of people that you probably know at uh, UT. They largely would have taken your class. So yeah, anything you want to say, um, you know, feel free to do so if you'd like. Oh, well, well, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Brandon, for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in and listening. And I I, I just, I hope you guys know just how much I care about you. And, um, uh, and I just have loved having you in class. And uh, please keep in touch. And if you have issues, scientific or otherwise, please shoot me a note and I'll do my best to, um, uh, to help you out. Terrific. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you.